This is Evermore Poe, the turbulent youth of Edgar Allan Poe. Chapter 36 Frances Allen sat in the picture window that overlooked 14th Street just as she had hundreds of times before. From this vantage, it was safe to gaze upon the world without actually having to engage in it, an act that had become increasingly difficult for her to do. In fact, nothing had been all right for years. Things had changed since their whirlwind romance all those years ago, when a dashing young Scot whisked Miss Frances Keeling Valentine onto a cotillion dance floor. Within a year, they'd be married, the shingle of Ellison Allen hung, and John became a naturalized citizen. Life was heavenly for the newlyweds. Business was booming and John granted his young bride her every wish. But despite the expensive clothes and fancy carriage, he could not give her the one thing she wanted most of all. The couple tried for a baby, but with no luck. Desperate, Frances secretly consulted a woman at the plantation whose reputation for mixing potions and casting spells was becoming legendary in hushed circles. But that didn't work either. So when the celebrated actress Eliza Poe became terminally ill, Frances sat vigil with the dying woman, already a widow, while someone else occupied her soon-to-be-orphaned children. Fanny's last few bedside visits were silent and peaceful, but overwhelmingly somber. Thankfully, she was absent the day the actress took her final breath, giving her the needed strength to console the three Poe orphans. William understood their mother was dead and wept openly. Little Edgar cried, although at age two, he couldn't have known what was really happening. Throughout it all, the infant Rosalie remained eerily silent. Frances vowed to help the children. She placed the baby with the Mackenzies and sent little William off to his grandparents in Baltimore. Only then did she plead with John to take in the toddler Edgar. The three lived happily until Sister Nancy's fiancé died in Mr. Madison's War of 1812, and she too came to live under the Allen roof. Eddie was Fanny's pride and joy as she paraded the child around in a way that made the good ladies of Richmond coo and their husbands cringe. She indulged him to no end and tied her happiness to his. But as the years progressed, things changed. The money stopped flowing, John's temper flared, an oppressive pall came over their home. And yet, Fanny put on a good front with a cheery outward disposition. But after a while, even the facade began to crack, and Fanny's melancholy began. She ignored her health and embraced her loneliness, taking comfort in this darkness. It was just easier to suffer in silence. Frances remembered the day John came home and announced their move to England. Equally shocked and angry, Fanny played the gentle supporter while quelling her own concerns. Through it all, Eddie was the glue that kept her emotions together. The boy wouldn't stop talking about the trip, and in that, Fanny found joy. The Atlantic crossing wasn't easy either. Fanny remained seasick in the dank cabin aboard the Lothair for nearly a week. Once they arrived, however, things got better as she and Nancy explored London boutiques and watched royal pageantry at Buckingham Palace. But after a while, she missed home. When the Post brought letters from the States, Frances read them repeatedly. Nancy reminded her that Richmond, Virginia was so named for its similarity to Richmond Hill on the Thames. That little fact seemed to help, but only for a while. Meantime, Eddie's childlike excitement was the perfect cure for her sorrow. So how could she say no when her darling boy asked to join his pa on a trip to Scotland? 
John never said he planned to leave the boy there. When Frances found out, she became furious. How could you just leave him there? She yelled. I didn't just leave him. He's with my sister Mary. There are other children there. You tricked him. You tricked me, she cried. I didn't even get to say goodbye. I didn't trick anyone, Fanny. Mary offered that the boy stay. He was laughing with the village boys when I left. You're the one who always complains there's no one decent for him to play with. You keep him locked up inside as though he'll fall in with some lice-infested costa. Someone had to do something. Fanny cried herself to sleep, imagining Eddie in a strange home. So weeks later, she was ecstatic when he finally came back. She ran down the stairs before the coachman had even come to a complete stop. Little Eddie opened the carriage door and jumped out. They held each other on the sidewalk, weeping openly against the disdainful looks from pursed-lipped Londoners. Yankees, they grumbled. Francis was thankful Eddie was back, but something was different, as if a bit of his innocence had been stolen. As the autumn weather set in, Fanny's health worsened. She lost a full stone, and although she wouldn't admit it, when she heard Ellison Allen was failing in London... She was secretly happy. Returning to Virginia was a wish come true, even though it would mean another grueling trip across the sea. Unfortunately, the trip home was worse than before. Fanny suffered so much seasickness that upon arrival in New York, a doctor was summoned. He took one look at her up and down and announced, She's fine, before handing John a bill. Once back in Richmond, Fanny's illness disappeared for a while. Too bad John wasn't there to enjoy her minor recovery. He was busy trying to pay back their massive debt. Thankfully, the Ellises lent them a lovely little house with a picket fence on the corner of 2nd and Franklin, complete with a fresh-faced servant girl named Juliet. Fanny always liked Juliet, and she knew the affection was mutual. Juliet wouldn't dare come right out and ask Fanny a question, but when prompted, she was filled with questions about life and what it meant to be a woman, and Fanny was only too willing to share. There was something special about this girl. In her, Eddie had a playmate and a positive influence, and although Fanny spotted a vague physical resemblance to Mr. Ellis, Juliet wasn't, according to society, to be treated like an Ellis. As for her acceptance of the girl's friendship with Eddie, Frances took a lot of heat. Eddie shouldn't play with the servant's children, they would say. She'll rub off on him. And while Frances was appalled at the comment and had her own opinions about slavery, no one ever asked her opinion. Years later, she was in awe of the gorgeous young woman, Juliet, sweet, well-mannered, and filled with the same joy of life she once knew. It was a pity she was a woman and fell into the three-fifths rule. It wasn't fair, but then again, life wasn't fair. In Juliet, Frances had a gentle listener and an emotional companion. She deserved more. So the day Fanny decided to teach Juliet to read was a bold political stance on women's issues and the growing abolitionist movement. Fanny knew it was illegal to teach a servant to read, but she didn't care. Nancy was let in on the secret, and eventually, Eddie too. Juliet took to reading like wildfire. By the end of the first month, she knew basic words, and within the year, she was reading Bible verses, too. Frances was proud of her apt student, as well as her defiant and covert operation. With John and Mr. Ellis away, or down the pub courting business, it was also cathartic. John would come home smelling of perfume, harboring obvious secrets. Now Fanny had a secret, too. And while she was despondent over her husband's obvious infidelity, there wasn't much she could do about it. Years later, 
She sat contemplating the world through a dozen panes of glass, all the while engaging less and less and less. Evermore Poe is the historical account of a teenaged Edgar Allan Poe. If you'd like to learn more about Eddie's devolution to become the master of the macabre, please don't forget to follow and share this podcast. Evermore Poe was researched, written, produced, and edited by yours truly, journalist Chris Kosach. I began my research more than a decade ago using vetted journalistic methods with corroborated fact-checking from respected sources including the Library of Congress, periodicals obtained from multiple Poe museums, notable scholars, and the National Archives, among other collections, strung together in a narrative style. In other words, my story is mostly true. Our music today is from Esther Abrami. It should be noted that some of the characters in Evermore Poe are composites of real people, including servants and slaves who lived in the Allen home at the time of our story. Please note, while Evermore Poe is based on fact, it should not be confused with the historic record. For that, I hope you will go down your own rabbit hole to research one of the most thrilling American authors of all time. Our story continues again next time on Evermore Poe. Until then, I'm Chris Kosach. Thank you for listening.